Uh, Good to be with you. Good to be continuing in our sermon series on the book of Psalms as we get ready for this fall. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already to that text. We're going to be really diving into it in the early part of this sermon uh, this morning. But I'm just going to jump right in and I'm going to pray for us. And we are going to consider uh, what God's word has for us this morning. So, Father, the psalmist today, we rejoice in you. Thank you for speaking to us in love and with clarity. We pray that as we read your word this morning, that you would help us to understand it by your spirit, that you would teach us. We ask, Lord, that as a result of this time that we would leave here a people changed to both love you and to love others more deeply. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start this morning with a little bit of a uh, confession that I have not always been the bastion of holiness and wise living. In, in fact, if you uh, know me well enough, even now, you know that I am still certainly a, a work in progress. But if you met me back in my college days, uh, some of you may not have recognized me. These were the days that I refer to a little bit tongue-in-cheek as uh, the dark ages uh, of my life. And it was a season where much of my life uh, was not quite congruent Uh, with one who professed to have faith in Jesus. I'll give you an example of this. I was not so good at uh, taming my tongue. And it got so bad to the point where my friends around me, uh, they opened up a Facebook page where they could record the things that I said so that they could look back at them and give me a hard time and just mark out how absurd and outrageous uh, my language was at that point. Now, I'm not going to give you access to that Facebook page, but rest assured uh, that, that it does exist. And yet this was a season that God did a wonderful work in my life. It was a season where he, he drew me to himself and, and he saved me. But even after he had saved me, uh, like I said, I was a work in progress. It, I went on this process of sanctification where, where the Lord had to burn away those impurities. So I was certainly a, a, a work in progress as all of us are in our following of Jesus. And as you would expect, during this season, my parents were less than thrilled uh, about some of my behaviors. And, and so I, w- I was up here, and I was intending to go and, and pursue uh, studying medicine, and, and I would get these calls from my mom. And, and here's what my mom would say to me. She would ask me a question. She would say, Matt, when are you finally going to turn the corner? When are you going to turn the corner on your life? And what she was asking me was, was when I was going to begin living wisely, when I was going to prioritize what mattered, right? She, she saw that I had this great opportunity in front of me, and she was wondering if I was actually ever going to take hold of it. It was a difficult season, and she was waiting for that breakthrough to finally happen where I put things all together. Now, hopefully many of you don't have too many rebellious seasons that you can look at in your life. Hopefully you don't have too many dark ages. If the Lord protected you from them, then, then, then praise him for that. But even if you haven't had those moments, all of us, no matter where we are coming from or what our situation is, have encountered seasons of grand opportunity in our life. Maybe it's relational opportunity from you, where you come into meeting a new community, or a new group of friends, or maybe just one friend, and you realize, if I I leverage this, right, this this could be awesome. This could lead to huge blessing. Maybe it's financial opportunity, where you all of a sudden inherit a bunch of money, and you're like, what what am I going to do with this? How how am I going to use this well? 
or a vocational opportunity gets put in front of you. You, you network correctly or, or someone in your company says, we want you to be a part of this and you don't want to waste the thing that is before you. Or maybe if you're a student here, it's, it's educational opportunity. Maybe you're starting high school or you're, you're starting in college or maybe you're, you're starting your new job and there's a lot to learn and you wanna make sure you learn everything there is to know. Whatever it is, we all encounter these seasons of our life where if we go about it rightly and wisely, it could really lead to breakthrough. They're crossroads moments for us where if we steward it well, it can not only bless us, but bless those around us. Oftentimes these happen at, at kind of life stage seasonal changes. And if we, we go about this well, then Jesus could be honored in the midst of that. And yet in the midst of these opportunistic moments of our life, with the opportunity for success often comes the opportunity for failure. Right? If, we, if we don't leverage these moments, if we don't take advantage of, of what is right in front of us, it could really change the trajectory and the season of our life. As we run into Israel this morning in Psalm 81, they are having a crossroads type of moment. For those of you that know the scriptures well, you know that Israel has quite a, a bumpy history about them, where they began at Mount Sinai officially as this nation, where God made them this wonderful promise. He took them to be his portion. He took them to be his people. And at that same mountain, he also communicated his expectations to them, that if he was going to be their God, that they were going to have to obey him. And it was actually in that obedience that they would experience deep pleasure and deep blessing. But many of us who are familiar with the scriptures know that the story takes a pretty radical downward turn following that because Israel really struggled to obey God and everything that he had asked of them. And as a result, they watched many of the things that they held dear in their life slip through their fingers. They watched as they were conquered by a foreign nation, as their temple was destroyed, as their own nation itself engaged in civil war. And before they knew it, they were a conquered people in a foreign land. And yet they held out this hope. They held out this hope that they were still God's people and that one day he would vindicate them. In Psalm 81, we are looking back with these struggling people at their own tumultuous history. And they're going to hear from God that he does indeed still want them. In fact, he is longing for them to come back to him. But he makes it very clear that if they are going to experience blessing, that the same expectations apply. He says, if we're going to be in relationship, then there are stipulations to it. And today the Lord asks them, Israel, when are you going to turn the corner? When are you going to wake up to this new level of obedience and loyalty that I'm asking of you? You have the opportunity in front of you. Will you take advantage of it? He effectively says to them, Israel, I have turned to you. I have shown you grace, but will you now turn to me? And he makes it clear that if they do that, they will experience sheer abundance and although this text is a little culturally removed from us and we're gonna kind of try and bridge that gap, I think there's a lot for us to glean from it. So we're gonna just kind of jump in here. Today we're gonna to go into this text a little bit differently uh, than we have usually when, when I'm preaching a sermon. Usually I'll kind of break it down and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the text and then we'll talk about how it relates to us and so on and so forth. But Psalm 81 takes us on kind of a, a journey. 
And it's best read when it's kind of seen as a complete unit. And so we are going to go through this journey with these people in one shot. And we're going to look at this text from beginning to end. So stick with me on this. Because if you do, I promise you'll get a a better glimpse of kind of what the whole text is communicating for us. So we'll look at that and then we'll consider how it impacts them. And then we'll look at what the text holds for us. So let's start with looking again at at verses 1 through 5. So look there with me. It says, sing for joy to the God of our strength. Sing aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music, strike the timbrel, play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon. And when the moon is full on the day of our festival, this is a decree for Israel, an ordinance for the God of Jacob. Of the God of Jacob. When God went out against Egypt, he established it as a statute for Joseph. Let's stop there. So the early part of this text is what we would call a call to worship. And if you have been a part of Elmwood for any length of time, then you should know what a call to worship is because we do one of these every single Sunday. It's when we get together and and we are, are called to who we are actually going to be worshiping. It's where we set our sights on the one who is in fact worthy of worship. Usually uh, Peter will, will say something in the beginning and then we'll have a scripture passage to kind of set our sights on God himself and then we'll engage in worship through song. And so that is exactly what is going on here. However, however, this text seems to allude to the fact that this was not just any ordinary worship gathering that Israel was coming into. It was not just any ordinary situation for them. Because based on, look at verse three with me, literally look at the text when it talks about the new moon and when the moon is full. So the new moon and the full moon. Based on that language, scholars would posit that Israel was probably coming into one of the holiest times of the year. In the Jewish calendar, which is different than the calendar that that we ordinarily follow, it's known as the month of Tishrei. If you have any Jewish friends presently, uh, when they get into the high holidays, that that is the month of Tishrei. So this is a a, a very significant time for them. And during the month of Tishrei, there were three feasts that Israel would engage in. The first one was known as trumpets. Okay, this, was, this is the first kind of start to, to the year. It's, it's known as Rosh Hashanah presently. So if you're familiar with Rosh Hashanah, then you know what trumpets is. 15 days later, they would engage in booths, which is in Hebrew known as Sukkot. And it's where they would celebrate that, that God led them through the promised land as they lived in tents or booths on the way to the place that God had for them. And in between this was the Day of Atonement. It was the holiest day of the year. It was the time where they remembered their their reckoning before God. So if you want to know more about some of that, I don't have all the time to lay that out now. Here's my shameless plug. Come to the adult class. We'll talk more about it, and it's totally worth it. But needless to say, this was a time of deep meaning, a time of deep reflection, and a time of very zealous worship for Israel. And that's the context of what Psalm 81 is calling them to worship him. The psalm is meant to be paired with a very significant moment for this people, and it sets them up for the retelling of one of the most important stories in their history, the story of the Exodus. And that's exactly what is recalled in verses six through 10, when it says, I remove the burden from their shoulders. Their hands are set free from the basket. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of the thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear me, my people, and I'll warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, you shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any God other than me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. So if you've been around Elmwood, then you know that we actually talk about the Exodus 
quite a lot, probably more than is actually healthy. Probably like 15 to 25% of our sermons, the Exodus event comes up. But there's actually a reason for that. And the reason for that is that this is the place where, where Israel began to define themselves as a people. This is where God liberated them from seemingly impossible situations. And so if you are an ancient Israelite, this is ground zero for your identity, who you are, who your family is, who your people are overall. But that was a moment where Israel not only learned a whole lot about who they were, it was actually a moment where they learned even more about who God was. At the Exodus, they learned that God was relational, that he wanted to be in covenant partnership with them. They learned that he was faithful, that, he, he, that when he said he would free them, that he was actually going to do it, that he was willing to put his money where his mouth was. They learned that God was powerful in that moment, that not only did he say he would do it, but he was actually capable of conquering their enemies. And they learned that he was caring, that although he didn't need them, he went to great lengths because he did indeed want them. And that's just some of what could be gleaned from the Exodus. But the point is this, that, that the Exodus was not just a cataclysmic event historically for them. It was a revelation of who God was to them. God actually used this to demonstrate his love and his character for these people. So they leave Egypt and they arrive at Mount Sinai and this is the place where God tells them that he wants to bless, bless them. This is the place where they learn that his intentions for them were, were greater than they could ever have dreamed of. But here was the issue. The issue is just like every relationship we had, there was clear expectations that if God's gonna be king, that there needs to be some semblance of loyalty to him, right? I, I have one scholar that I really admire who talks about faith as being believing loyalty. And that's exactly what God was demanding of Israel. He said, if I'm gonna be your king, then I am asking faith in you that's demonstrated in action. And it's this moment that's actually being alluded to in verses nine through 10. Look with me at Exodus 20. We're gonna go back. It says, God spoke, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Think about that and then just hear what's being said in verse uh, nine, you shall have no foreign God. You shall not worship any other God. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It's a clear echo of the expectations that are, were being put on God's initial people here. And then needless to say, Israel was super excited to get on board for what God had for them. Look at uh, Exodus 19 with me. It says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak. So Moses went and summoned the elders and the people. And here's what, what they said. We will do everything, verse eight, that the Lord has said. Keep in mind, this is before they even know what God expects of them. They're just psyched about it. They just want to be a part of it and they think that they are ready for what lies ahead. So this is an enormously exciting moment that is being recalled in Israel's history as we're looking at today's text. But that is just part of the history. And this is where things get pretty complicated because the next part of the Psalm records what actually happened once they got on board here. Here's what it said. But my people would not listen to me Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. So a moment of great promise leads to a situation that clearly didn't go as they would have hoped because despite what God wanted of them 
and from them, this faith and this trust expressed in loyalty to him, they rejected God as their king. And the scariest part of all of that was that God honored their decision not to honor him. He respected their decision to walk away. And that led to enormous ruin for them. And yet that is not where the psalm ends, is it? That's just a glimpse into what happened. But how does the psalm end? It says, if my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I'd subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. So the text is clear that although these people have a a track record of sorts, if you will. That is not where they need to stay. Yes, God is going to justly punish them for their disobedience. And in fact, many of them probably are experiencing that even now as they're hearing Psalm 81 back in the day. But that punishment is also meant to be a red flag to them. Saying, guys, come back to me. This is not actually what I want for you. I will punish you, but I want something better for you. That's not how it needs to stay. And we see that God will not only judge them, but he wants to bless them abundantly. And in fact, he is yearning for them to come back. Just look at verse 13. If my people would only listen to me, right? Verse eight, hear me, my people, and I'll warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, he wants them to return. So yes, this was their situation, but the Psalm says that that's not how it needs to stay. So let's review, because I know that's a lot. So we begin with a call to worship. Uh, verses one through five. And this moves to remembering what God did for Israel in the Exodus and at Sinai. They see the promise, opportunity put in front of them. Then we move on to recalling the disobedience of what actually happened, where they sought to do what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do. And finally, the Psalm finishes with God's desire for them, his deep desire for them to return to him and for them to bless him. Are y'all tracking with me? So that is how Psalm 81 flows. It's a Psalm of remembrance and it's full of potential for God's people. It's full of potential for what life could be like if they would only return to God. So let's ask for a minute, how would the original audience have heard this? What would this have done in them as they were reciting this, being led by the priests, most likely in exile at this point? Let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. Let's remember that this original audience, like us, was looking back at this Exodus moment. This was not a present thing for them. They were hearing this psalm, and they were recognizing that this was part of their their family heritage, right? They were not there when the Red Sea parted. They were not there when the Ten Commandments were given. This is a trip down memory lane for them. So on one hand, they are being beckoned to worship because of what God had done, that he had freed them from nearly impossible circumstances. But on the other hand, they are being thoroughly reminded that they are a compromised people and that corruption has plagued them through and through. And the fact that they had sought abundant life outside of God had only led to hurt for them. And if it's true the original audience was in exile, then they're actually still experiencing the climax of the disobedience that began with their ancestors here. But what's beautiful about this psalm, especially for these people, is how it ends, right? It describes Israel's disaster, but that's not how it finishes. It finishes for them with what God would do if they would only turn back to him. What I want us to see is that there is an implied invitation in this text for God's people to come back to him. It's not, God doesn't say, you messed it up. 
here's what your ancestors did. Here's what you're still doing. And it's too late and I'm forfeiting my relationship with you. That's not what it says. It says, here's what happened to you. And in the midst of that, I still want you. And you are still my people. And there is still hope for you. And so despite this brutal honesty of the psalm, it sets Israel up at a, at a crossroads. They know who God is. They know that he has been and that he will continue to be faithful to them. That's never the question for them. The question that this psalm begs of us is will they be faithful? And will we be faithful? I want us to think about a, a couple of the present implications of this for us. I think the first one is this, that, that worship and praise are not optional activities. I want you to notice how difficult this psalm is on these people, and yet they're still commanded to praise as they enter into it. And it's because they have a very high reverence for who God is, and, and we should have the same. Because built into this psalm is not a push to blame God for what happened, right? It's not a, it's not a lament, it's not crying out to God in the midst of this and saying, God, how, how could you let this happen? No, this is a psalm of recognition that God's people are often very weak people. And it's in his grace that they find that strength, right? This is an acknowledgement that, that Israel was responsible for the way that things had gone. And so even when they hear this, they're supposed to rejoice. How do we make sense of that? What are we supposed to think about that? And I think the heart of this is this. They're rejoicing because God has revealed himself. They're rejoicing because God has spoken. And because he has spoken, they can know what it means to be in relationship and what it means to be a changed people at the end of the day. Practically speaking, we believe that worship is a formative thing, as they do. We believe that as we engage in it, it not only brings God glory, but it actually benefits us that it makes us into a certain type of people. It's actually a means that the Spirit of God uses in order to make us into the image of Jesus. And so we don't worship just for worship's sake. We worship because the one who we are worshiping is holy. And so worship is dependent on his worthiness and not upon our desire. So I wanna repeat this, that worship and praise are not optional activities for God's people. The second thing, is that we need not be defined by our past, whether that be our family's past or our own personal past. The whole emphasis of Psalm 81 is here's what your family did, Israel. Here's where you have been, Israel. Here's where you're presently at, but it doesn't need to stay there. That doesn't need to be where you are bound up. Every one of us here has a unique story. And all of those stories, I'm sure, are very complicated. They, they have high points, they have very low points and they have kind of plateaued points. And sometimes in those challenging moments of our life, they happen because of things that we did, yes. But sometimes there are things that also have happened to us that were outside of our control. And so maybe you are sitting here this morning and, and you are still experiencing some of the, the consequences of either what you have done or what has happened to you. Maybe you're wrestling with, with guilt and shame or pain and, and frustration. But nonetheless, here's what the text is clear about, that God's heart is still for you, that you are still invited to God's table, that your life is still meaningful to him, and that there is still hope for you no matter what. And along those lines, I want to point out one more implication of this text, and it's that God desires to both rescue and bless you abundantly. God desires to both rescue and bless you abundantly. Sometimes what we, we fall prey to is the fact that our life experiences 
and kind of the cultural moment we're in can end up shaping our view of God. And if we're not careful, then we end up with these caricatures of who God is when we're facing challenging moments of our life. Sometimes we, we end up feeling like God is a, a genie, like he exists to grant our desires in those moments where we need him, right? Sometimes we view him as the, the cosmic vending machine, that if I put in enough coins, if I put in X, then, then he will do Y, then he will definitely respond in this way that I expect. Some of us in our moments of pain, sometimes see God as a, a drill sergeant where he's watching us very closely. And if we do one thing wrong, that he's right there to point out our sin and all of our flaws and brokenness. Or maybe you've experienced a circumstance where you, you struggle to not compare God to a person, a friend or a family member in your life that caused you great hurt. Maybe a father figure or a mother figure. Either way, we can end up very quickly with tainted views of God if we are not careful. And yet the scriptures are our lens that sorts out our bad theology. And what this, te this text tells us is that God is so different than all of those things that I just described. What it tells us is that God is gracious and he is compassionate, that he has a heart that longs and yearns for you to know him. And he wants to make it clear to you that mercy is available to every one of us. And he wants us to experience all of the goodness, all of the abundance that he has for you. So I want us to, to end this morning by simply seeing the love of God poured out through Psalm 81. Yes, it's a hard psalm for Israel. Yes, it's calling to account their broken past. But the heart of God and the invitation of God is that they and we would come back to him. So as we come to the table this morning, as we, we take of, uh, uh, of the juice and of the bread, I want us to just finish by looking at Jesus. Because the heart of this text points us so clearly to him. Because the whole hope of Psalm 81 is for God's people to be faithful, right? That God would finally have a people that would look to him and, uh, and him alone as their all in all. And yet the story of Israel and the story of all of our lives is that it's far more complex than that. And it's oftentimes far more complicated than that. Where it's easy for us to get caught up in a, a vicious cycle. Where despite knowing the, the Lord's desire for us, we sometimes naturally reject him. Not always in explicit ways, even on our, our heart motives and our heart postures. That there's something deep-seated within us where we're locked into this battle that we just can't seem to break free of. That I think the Apostle Paul describes well in Romans 7. Where he says there's these things here that I know I should be doing. And for some reason, I don't do them. And I don't know why, I just don't do them. And there's things over here that I know I shouldn't be doing. And there's this thing inside of me that makes me want to do them and I keep doing them over and over and I can't seem to break free. What it says in Romans is, is who will free me from this, right? Who will liberate me? It's a season of bondage where, where what we find is that faithfulness to God is not something that we are capable of mustering up on our own and in our own strength. Yes, we have moments of faithfulness, but that's far different than a life characterized by it. And this problem of unfaithfulness is not only Israel's issue, but it is our issue as well. And just as God loves them, he has expressed his love for us in a very similar way in that he was faithful for us. And he demonstrates this in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
as he takes on flesh for them. And he's born into this broken family line, not only to redeem all of them who would trust in him, but all of us who would trust in him as well. And the life he lived, he not only lived for them, but he lived for us. And when he was being crucified, labeled as a blasphemer, here's what the scriptures say was actually happening. That he was actually the sinless one, dying on behalf of us, the sinful, the blasphemers of God. He was the one who was being faithful, who was dying for us who are so often faithless. And when he rose three days later, conquering sin and death, he invited us into a a new covenant, a relationship with God where we're invited to, to repent, to trust in him for who he is and what he's done, to experience forgiveness, and to turn to him and him alone. And what Jesus asks of us is pretty radical. He asks us to forsake the illusion that abundance can be found outside of him. He asks us to reject this falsehood that we can find comfort and abundance in our vocational status, in our parenting skills, in our financial situation, in our own autonomy, or whatever it is. What he says is this. He says, paradoxically, if you want to find life, here's what you have to do. You have to die to yourself. And he says, if you're willing to die to yourself, then you will find that I am the resurrection. And I am the life that you have been looking for. He deeply desires that we would come to him this morning and every single day and live. Our psalm this morning is a psalm of remembrance and invitation and repentance. So as we take communion, I want us to remember what God has done in Christ Jesus. And I want us to hear this invitation back. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter if you've, you've never followed Jesus before, the invitation stands for you. If you've been following Jesus for 30 years, this invitation stands for you. Just like Israel was, you too are invited back to God today. But it all starts in the same place, faith and repentance. No matter how deep your sin is, how compromised you believe you are, it begins with believing that God is greater than our sin, And it expresses itself as we turn from that sin, believing that God can provide the abundance, the comfort, everything we need that that sin cannot provide for us. And what God makes is his promise. He says everything that we need will be found in him. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And so we take confidence this morning, not in ourselves, but in the God who says this to his people. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord who frees you from bondage. And he tells us this morning, just as he tells them, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Let's pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. Lord, we confess that it's so easy for us to seek abundance and to seek life in people and things other than you. And your Lord, we know from reading this psalm and even from us experiencing some of us in our own lives, that that can only lead to disaster. That can only lead to the place where, where we are not satisfied until we know that our hearts will only be satisfied in you. Lord, we confess that as a result of some of this, we have not loved you with our, our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, Lord, we believe that we are invited back today, that you call us back to yourself. So in your mercy, Lord, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us amend what we are? And would you direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name? 
And all of God's people said, amen.